Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. The usual two segments today, we'll hear from Alexander Zaychik, author of a new book, Owning the Sun, a history of how the life-saving business of drug-making became a paradise for patent lawyers and monopoly profiteers. And then Zoe Liu of the Council on Foreign Relations will talk about the impact of the Ukraine crisis on the U.S. dollar's international role. Shortly after the first polio vaccine was announced in 1955, TV newsman Edward R. Murrow asked his lead inventor, Jonas Salk, who owns the patent. Salk replied, well, the people, I would say. There is no patent. Could you patent the sun? Times have changed. Today, vaccines and other pharmaceuticals are protected by impregnable patent walls to sustain monopoly pricing. How did this come to be? That's a question that Alexander Zaychek answers in his new book, Owning the Sun, A People's History of Monopoly Medicine, from Aspirin to COVID-19, just out from CounterPoint Press. In the interview, we discuss TRIPS without spelling it out. It stands for Trade-Related Intellectual Property Rights. Tightened restrictions on international property that were inserted into global trade negotiations by the U.S. during the late 1980s and early 1990s. That was quite the move, since they had very little to do with trade, but the U.S. wanted to protect its drug, technology, and entertainment industries. Here's Alexander Zaychik. You've got a long history of intellectual property in the book, so let's, let's review some of that. Now, early free marketeers like uh, Adam Smith hated intellectual property restrictions, yet their alleged descendants embraced them. <laughs> How'd that happen? Right. The figures associated with the sort of age of reason and then the Enlightenment did not see ideas as anything remotely compatible with the theory of property being developed during that time. They thought ideas and physical objects were clearly different for a bunch of reasons. Efficiency and knowledge flow throughout the economy and society were part of that, but it was also a matter of inheriting a very long tradition of thinking about knowledge as something that was not claimable, that was trans-historical and was somehow gifted from, not quite a gift from God, but as common as air, as like the elements. It was everybody's charge. And then with Christianity, you had this sort of religiousification of this idea of knowledge as a gift from God and any attempt to um, put a, a spike in that and, and claim it for personal gain was, was sacrilege, literally. And then with the Enlightenment, this was kind of secularized and re-upped as a ideal encapsulated in this idea of a republic of science that knew no borders and research was about the betterment of humanity and it was not about personal gain. And while there may be a scope for that, science and especially medical science was outside of those bounds and, sh and should remain so. So the sort of figures that we associate with the rise of modern capitalism inherited this long tradition in its various forms and also thought it was just a charade to say that patents, monopolies on inventions were somehow spurs to advance and innovation. They just didn't see that logic holding up. They said, no, this is going to inhibit innovation. It's not going to lead to diffusion. It's going to lead to blocking off um, entire realms of inquiry, which is in fact what ended up happening. I know the founding fathers of the U.S. Um, inherited much of that worldview. And at the Constitutional Convention, it wasn't until the very end of it that, was it James Madison inserted uh, something about uh, patents and trademarks? Yep. Article 1, Section 8 was basically written by James Madison and adopted at the very end of the conference, which basically said the government had a right to issue patents on invention to spur progress in the useful arts. That's all it says. It's very brief. And it's clear in the language that the goal of the patent system is to advance knowledge. Any use of the patent system that inhibits the diffusion of knowledge and its eventual spread beyond the patent term is against the spirit and the letter of what is now known as the intellectual property clause, but for a long time was known as the progress clause. <laughs> that's, that's an interesting transformation in the, in the labeling. Yeah. 
It was only a few decades later that Andrew Jackson, uh, that great populist, signed a law that did a lot to create the modern regime. How did that happen and what was, what was the content of it? Part of the Jacksonian revolution was turning away from this Republican conception of knowledge that informed the original progress clause. The Jacksonians basically said, look, a patent is not about some promise to advance learning in science and eventually help the American people in the world. It's just a piece of property like anything else. If a corporation wants to patent something and they want to sit on that patent, or if they want to purchase somebody else's patent for the purpose of blocking off a possible competitor's line of inquiry, that's fine. You can do whatever the hell you want with a patent. It was basically the innovation in um, intellectual property law that Jackson initiated and which really fulfilled itself during the Gilded Age, where you have the rise of entire industries and trusts that are sitting on just enormous thickets of patents, not for the purpose of you know, spurring progress in the, in the useful arts, but blocking competitors and making sure nobody had access to knowledge for as long as possible. Yeah, I was surprised how early on the uh, the clever patent lawyer popped up. <laughs> Today's sharks have a long uh, long ancestry. Yeah, they started trawling the land early into this Jacksonian turn. They basically said, okay, if the patent is just a piece of property, uh, we can turn it into a club. So they started trawling the farms of, the, of rural America, basically saying, look, this company has a patent on this well design that you're using, which maybe your family has been using for as long as you can remember, or a swing gate mechanism that, again, has been around forever, but now it's patented. And if you want to avoid getting hauled into court, you have to pay our uh, infringement fee. This was one of the issues at the heart of the, of the populist movement. They were furious about this, and it really raised intellectual property as a matter of fierce political dispute for the first time and was right at the center of the antitrust politics of the 1870s, 1880s, and 1890s. And uh, I don't know what year this came about, but there was a, a case, uh, U.S. versus Bell Telephone. There were several cases around Bell, but uh, there was one in which uh, it was uh, the Supreme Court held that the inventor has the right to withhold knowledge from the public. It, it's amazing. I mean, I, that's really what the system amounts to. But if it's stated that baldly, it would be rather unpopular. But the inventor can do whatever he or she wants. With- yeah, that the decision basically consummated the... Jacksonian suffocation of the original patent bargain, the social contract that was underlying Article 1, Section 8. And that was a matter of dispute. It was not just accepted. I mean, the courts enshrined it, but it was a public issue for a long time. And it's worth noting that even after the courts had accepted this new idea of the patent as just physical property and nothing else, medicines were still outside of that system. If patents were the exception to a general ban on monopoly, medical patents were the exception to the exception. You could patent anything you wanted, but pharmaceutical companies did not patent medicines in the United States up until the Bell cases and even into the 20th century. And if you did try to patent a drug or medicine, it was not prescribable. The AMA refused to prescribe it. It was not admitted to the pharmacopa, and you were subjected to absolutely withering scorn in the journals, in the press. In professional societies, the patent taboo held firm right up into the 20th century. The 19th century was a time that was famous for snake oil salesmen. And to see you mentioned one of my favorite books, Melville's Confidence Man, the herb doctor and all his, his potions that he sells. But there was a battle at the time between um, what would you know, the ethical side of medicine, as was called, and, uh, and these, the, these snake oil salesmen. How did intellectual property figure into all that, if at all? Ethical medicine did not permit any mixing of medical research, medical practice, everyday pharmacy, the mixing of medicines and intellectual property. There was a firewall and any snake oil salesmen that did mix the two were basically considered to be part of a completely different economy, which was the patent medicine economy. It was basically P.T. Barnum and his ilk. And you could see the difference in these two drug economies by the advertising. You were not allowed to have any pictures, testimonials. You were not allowed to use trademarks or brands. You could only advertise an ethical drug with simple text, the name of the company, which may have a reputation for quality, and you could point that out. But it was very staid. And this was enforced... Uh, with meticulousness. And on the other side, you had jumbo elephants 
and brightly colored garish ads promising a cure-all for any disease and eternal life or whatever the patent medicine may be promising. And as that wall breaks down, a good barometer of that is to look at the advertising in medical journals and also just trade press and popular press. And as the ethical drug firms begin to use colorful advertising, doctor testimonials, promises of stuff that used to be associated with patent medicines, that's where you can see intellectual property and um, market concerns growing in their role within what used to be called ethical medicine, a term which really stopped being used um, as World War II approached. The Germans rolled in and uh, transformed the whole scene. What was the German invasion all about? They inflicted some of the first cracks in the patent taboo. They could not get monopolies on some of their very important drugs in the 1880s and 1890s. It was the chemical firms, really, chemical slash pharmaceutical firms. Uh, they made breakthroughs with um, coal dyes, tars, and they invented some very important drugs, including finacetine, aspirin, cocaine. <laughs> but finacetine and aspirin were the two patents that really inflicted the biggest, deepest cracks in the patent taboo because it couldn't be denied that they were real medicines. They, they clearly were not bottles of snake oil. These were pills that actually did what they said they did, and it was a benefit to humanity. But the courts in the U.S. gave them a patent. So suddenly the medical establishment and the ethical pharmaceutical establishment had to make a decision. Do we keep this out of the pharmacopoeia? And of course, you couldn't. You had to prescribe it. But the ethical pharmaceutical establishment did not go quietly. They organized a nationwide smuggling operation to undermine the Bayer patent monopoly. With the assistance of druggists, right? Yes. And the tacit assistance of organized medicine. And the American people were in great support of it until some safety issues and safety scandals emerged in the early 1900s, leading to the 1906 Drug, Food and Cosmetics Act. Yeah, it was the Germans, to go back to your original question, who took advantage of the court's willingness to grant medical patents, even though it wasn't done because it was an ethical standard maintained by the industry in this country, even though they technically had access to monopoly. So ironically, it was you know firms that couldn't get monopolies in Europe came here and basically showed the Americans how it was done. And then when World War I came, we, of course, took all their IP and distributed it, diffused it widely. And um, some of the American firms ended up on the other side of World War I with their own drug monopolies, and they had also absorbed the German lesson in how to do it. We stole their patents. It was really, in many ways, the foundation of the modern American chemical and pharmaceutical industries, uh, but we uh, didn't uh, depart from the principle of, of patenting um, drugs. It was just, uh, we wanted theirs, but then once they ha we had theirs, then we were going to keep them from everyone else. Yes, and they started to, you started to see debates about ethical patenting. It was a slow, gradual process where you, they weren't quite ready to give up on the old values or the self-identity that they'd been rooted in for so long. So they said, well, maybe we can patent drugs and medicines in a way that keeps the old ideals, but protects the uh, medicine from unethical actors, ensures quality and safety. So they started to make justifications for patents, both university research centers and also uh, formerly strict ethical drug makers. And this process was sort of an interwar story. And at the end of World War II, the mask had basically come off and you have the arrival of unabashed post-ethical drug industry, the, the industry that we know today. I'm speaking with Alexander Zaychik, author of Owning the Sun, just out from Counterpoint Press. You write quite a bit about Vannevar Bush. Uh, and uh, as we're coming out of World War II, the U.S. government was financing more and more um, scientific research, medical research in particular. And there was a lot of fight over um, what was going to happen with that research, who was going to own it, who was going to make money off it. Bush um, was very influential in uh, establishing the eventual structure of that post-World War II order. Uh, yeah, so talk about him and the, the debate and uh, how it all shook out. Vannevar Bush, no relation to the Bush political dynasty, was a Boston scientist, academic, and entrepreneur, and also one of the first investors in Raytheon, which made him an extremely wealthy man. And he was also one of the major figures in the early military industrial complex. He was a science advisor to the government. During World War II, FDR realized that he was going to need some very competent people running the programs to, among other things, develop the atom bomb before the Germans 
and he was told to tap Vannevar Bush, which he did. This was one of the few cases of an extremely powerful and influential figure in his administration who was not a Democrat, not only not a New Dealer, but he wasn't even a Democrat. He was a Hoover Republican. And, you know, nobody would deny his, his brilliance and savvy as a science administrator. And he accomplished quite a bit during World War II from the penicillin project to the bomb. But as the debate over the shape of post-war science policy and patent policy in particular accelerated, he began strategizing with Republicans and uh, the pharmaceutical industry in particular. He did his best to create a system in which the default policy of the government was to allow the private contractor to retain control of patents resulting from government industry collaborations. The government should sign the checks, but then shut up afterwards. Correct. And the New Deal view represented by Harley Kilgore of West Virginia was the opposite, which was, look, if the government is paying for all this research and we're directing it, we should be able to maintain the patent when it's over, not just to inhibit the growth of these monstrous concentrations of private power, which <laughs> we're now seeing with, with, with the captured government and pharma industry control over Congress, but it will also guarantee the diffusion of this knowledge as widely as possible in accordance with the constitution, which is what the government's duty is in terms of uh, its relationship to the patent system. And it will also be good for the American people because it will drive down prices. If an invention is licensed broadly to 10 companies, that's better than having one company control the monopoly for 10, 20. Now they're controlling these monopolies, extending them artificially for 50 years. Very far-sighted critique of the Bush industry proposals. And that fight, kind of that wrestling match went back and forth with um, skirmishes and, and victories on both sides, basically up until by Dole in 1980. Kennedy played a role in it with a very famous memorandum in 1963. He ex issued an executive order shortly before his death, right, on federally funded research. The industry was not happy with that order, right? No, they spent the next 17 years organizing billions of dollars spent to overturn it. That was Kennedy's sort of parting gift, because uh, until then, it had been unclear whether he supported Estes Kefauver's hearings on the pharmaceutical industry, which ended in 1962, right on the cusp of the Cuban Missile Crisis. But right before he died, a year later, Kennedy tipped his hat and, and, and showed that he actually agreed with Kefauver's critique of um, the industry and, and adhered to what is essentially a New Dealer's view of public science under public control for the public benefit. And they were disappointed to find out that not even the Nixon administration would give, grant them what they like to call regulatory relief. That's right. Yep. It wasn't until 1979 that they finally over, overturned that and pulled it inside out. I want to get to uh, the political developments in a moment, but it's interesting how um, Hayek and the Mont Pelerin gang didn't like patents or monopolies. They were sort of returning to the Enlightenment uh, view of those things. Yet, Chicago School neoliberalism eventually uh, had a major turn in the direction of uh, IP restrictions. Uh, how'd that happen? Yeah, starting with von Mises through Hayek, as you mentioned, and, and everyone around Hayek after he came to America were consistent on that score with classical liberalism. They said these patent monopolies are not part of any consistent idea of a free market. They are artificial government creations imposed on an economy. And in, in terms of Hayek's theories, especially, they were blockages of information flow. The, the economy is this giant information processor, as Hayek posited, and that information flow is like the, the, the lifeblood of a free market, imposing these blocks and allowing corporations to construct patent thickets. He was against it. He said, this is just not how it should be. And he also was just sort of, I think, touched a little bit as, as, as were they all by a, a, an older idea of, of knowledge and science. And there were a lot of scientists, it's worth noting, who were associated with that original circle. And they were later replaced by legal hacks like Bork. But the original group was a more serious bunch and they were very consistent on that front. And what happened basically, long story short, was industry money funded the law and economics movement at the University of Chicago, including pharmaceutical money. The first issue of the Journal of Law and Economics had two funders. One was Eli Lilly. Uh, and that was a through line throughout the 1950s, 60s, and 70s with everything that happened to Chicago and the creation of the pharmaceutical echo chamber was pretty much masterminded out of 
the University of Chicago and uh, with George Stigler's involvement in particular. He was sort of at the center of that. And the new version of classical liberalism, neoliberalism, made an accommodation with monopoly. And they said, look, if it's emerging from the private sector, if the corporation says it's a good thing, then by definition, it's a good thing. And we have to get rid of this just completely anachronistic European antagonism to monopoly. That that's that's not how we do things here. It was pretty remarkable the way the speed and the the wholeness of that rejection. And uh, it just became a sort of a memory by the early to mid 1960s. That transformation had been more or less complete in terms of uh, the ideology being promulgated out of Chicago. Okay, and back to the political sphere in the U.S. There are several developments that uh, caused a shift in the 1970s. There was stagflation, which you know brought in a, a increasing hostility to uh, the New Deal inheritance. A shift within the Democratic Party. The young uh, generation elected uh, what in '74 uh, wanted to get rid of the old neo, uh, the New Deal crowd too, and uh, this eventually led to uh, the Buy Dole Act. Tell that story of the the political shift that happened in the '70s that finally uh, the industry got its dream in uh, undoing any public conception of uh, publicly funded science. Yeah, as you noted, the '70s were not kind to the industry. Nixon and Ford and Carter were resistant to claims that the government research should just be handed over in an assembly line to, to private contractors. But as the economic woes of the post-Vietnam years sort of deepened, you had an opening for those who wanted to find new narratives that would chime with public anxiety and get people thinking about things in new ways that would take advantage of the deep worry that people had over American competitiveness, as it was called, a term that wasn't really used before the mid-1970s. So what happened was you had a bunch of guys inside, and women, uh, inside the government and out that began to organize around this guy, Howard Foreman, in commerce, and Howard Latker inside uh, health, education, and welfare, as it was then known. And they basically brought together a group to strategize how to sell a industry-first patent policy to Congress on the basis of we can't compete with Europe and Japan's scare campaign, basically, is what it comes down to. They put forward a bunch of arguments that made no sense, that were not backed up by facts. You know, the idea that all these inventions were just sitting on government shelves and nobody had access to them because of this sclerotic Kennedy policy, when in fact, everyone had access to every invention the government came up with and controlled because that's the nature of public science. You can just use it. And most patents are never used to begin with. But most people in Congress then as now don't really understand the nuances of this. So they heard these speeches. They heard these hearings that the, the Republicans convened. They saw the editorials in the New York Times. And slowly but surely, the thinking within the Democratic Party began to shift. You also had all these new Watergate babies flooding into uh, formerly New Dealer seats, and they were more open to you know what we now think of as sort of DLC Clintonite uh, thinking on these matters. And uh, basically, the end of the Carter administration, even Carter uh, signed the law that flipped the Kennedy policy. No one was sure up until the last second whether he would do it or not. But even if he hadn't, you know, it was just a matter of time with Reagan coming into power. And what Reagan did was basically supercharged by Dole, um, took the mask off it. You know, it was originally sold as only benefiting universities and small businesses. But of course, they were just going to flip their patents to the, the majors anyway. So Reagan just removed that little step, removed the fake halo over by Dole, as one legal scholar put it, and then added new laws like Stevens and Wilder. And these were accelerated under Clinton. Um, and then we basically have seen no pushback since, but it's been a momentum towards industry's favor in every possible way, pretty much since 1979. I'm speaking with Alexander Zaychik, author of Owning the Sun, just out from Counterpoint Press. That period, uh, I have to admit, there was a pretty clever PR campaign they managed to put on. Um, they originated a lot of what you call drug company memes in that time period, like patents drive innovation and such. Yeah, could you review some of those and tell us what's wrong with them? The patent drive innovation meme, that predates the use of the word meme. I mean, that's what they call the drug story. That's what they've been saying forever. Basically, the argument is these outsized profits that the industry makes, which seem to defy gravity. I mean, they're the biggest margins in the economy by far. They, they're totally unrelated to things like supply, demand, cost of production, the usual factors that have something to do with the price of things. But they say, look, we need to make 
these margins because the R&D is so expensive and there's no way we could fund it uh, otherwise because it's so high risk and it's so expensive and we fail so much, blah, blah, blah. We've all heard it. It was never close to being the whole truth, but now it's not even close to being a partial truth. Most high risk research takes place with government money in academic labs on government grants. That has always been the case. And it is especially true now. And the money that is made as a result of hoovering up these inventions is going to a list that you're familiar with and people are starting to hear more about. It's it's going to stock buybacks. It's going to these enormous marketing campaigns and it's going to very ingenious efforts to rebrand and reshuffle existing drugs for the purpose of extending monopolies or being granted brand new monopolies, which can then be extended. Um, The latest front on this score is recombinant cancer drugs, where you'll have a cancer drug that is about to hit a patent cliff, but suddenly if you mix it with another drug, it is being sold to the patent office and approved as a brand new drug, even though there's no clear therapeutic benefit to this recombination. The only benefit is a new monopoly. Uh, which stops competition. And then if they can't do it that way, then there's all sorts of pay-to-play schemes where they're blocking competition. So the innovation is really not coming out of the pharmaceutical sector anymore. To the extent that it ever has, it's much less now. It's in, There's a lot of recent literature on this, so people can explore it on their own if they want. There's a report out of the House Oversight and Reform Committee recently. Carolyn Maloney led it after um, Elijah Cummings died, and it it breaks all of this down in gruesome detail. The the industry's innovation line has never been less serious, and and people are finally starting to to be willing to call their bluff because they're seeing it's not just new drugs that have these price tags, but old drugs, drugs that have there's no reason they should cost anywhere near what they do. And, and the only reason they do cost so much is because the government refuses to show basic self-respect and, and negotiate prices, considering their investment to produce them in the first place. Yeah, Martin Shkreli was uh, just a, a poor poster boy for this, but everybody does it, right? Yeah, and it's worth noting that you know Shkreli didn't go to jail for jacking up the cost of an HIV drug 7,000% or whatever it was. He got high fives for that. You know, it was, it was a totally unrelated <laughs> crime. Um, well, speaking of AIDS drugs, you tell a tale of AZT, uh, which is very instructive in this, uh, in this area. Um, developed largely with government money. The industry at first wouldn't touch it, and then they finally priced it up the wazoo. Uh, yeah, what, what about that? What does AZT tell us? AZT is exactly what Bidol and the subsequent laws of the 1980s set up. And it is exactly what the New Dealers said would happen if the government did not enforce its controlling rights on medicines that it funds. AZT was a repurposed cancer drug that was produced in an experimental program in the 1970s, funded completely by the National Cancer Institute. And it was a screening done by the National Cancer Institute that rediscovered what became AZT. The trials were completely overseen by the government. They could not find a partner to participate with them. No, but none of the drug companies who are always talking about how much they're the saviors of humanity and are going to be the drivers of the innovation, which are going to extend life and make the world a wonderful place. None of them wanted to touch HIV AIDS with a 10-foot pole. The government had to promise Burroughs welcome the house to even get them to participate. Even And even when they agreed to participate, they, they did so at some distance and they basically uh, were horrible partners. They were horrible partners right up until it came time to eat the bread in the old the little red hen fairy tale. It's basically what happened. Once the product was shown to work and it wasn't a great drug, but it was all we had back then, then Burroughs Welcome stepped up and said, oh yes, this is, this is ours. We, we were involved in this. The government was the junior partner, which was just laughable. And they priced it uh, at what was then the most expensive drug in the history of the world. And a lot of people could not afford it. And then the U.S. Uh, internationalized, uh, essentially internationalized uh, our, our drug patent regime through uh, the World Trade Organization and TRIPS uh, in the Clinton years, right? Yeah, that was basically the globalization of the system that led to the AZT travesty. And sure enough, once again, you had a tragic case study relatively soon to prove the critics correct, which was the rise of uh, antiretrovirals right at the height of the African AIDS crisis. 
what was the response of the industry now that they could enforce their patents globally through the WTO and the TRIPS regime. It was basically to deny the Mandela government the right to produce or import cheap generics, off-label versions of these life-saving drugs. And um, it was a series of events that are well told in a documentary by, I'm blanking on his name, Blood on Fire is the name of the film. I'd recommend it to anyone um, who wants to go over this episode in detail. It's really, it's it's almost unbelievable. I mean, the, the, there's a line somewhere in the film where he notes that it took the U.S. government 50 years to threaten sanctions on South Africa for apartheid, but it took the Clinton administration <laughs> a handful of years to um, threaten them with sanctions over the production of life-saving drugs when millions of its citizens were dying and, and, and the government was run by Nelson Mandela. And uh, how has the government corporate complex performed during the COVID era? As one would expect, the old rules were allowed to be transferred without hitch. Early on in the pandemic, Lloyd Doggett and a few Democratic congressmen tried to impose some sort of uh, pricing guarantees or tech transfer uh, promises on the first tranche of warp speed funds, billions of dollars. And uh, Stephen Ubel, the the main lobbyist for pharma in Washington, CEO of the Trade Association, basically said, don't even think about it. We will take our ball and go home. echo of what happened during the 80s, where they were just like, we're not going to get involved if you try to constrain us in any way. So this is how much they care. And this is how much distance we've traveled from the old ideals of um, ethical pharmacy. It seems almost impossible to imagine reversing this. Is there a way and could it be done? How would you do it? You can control and limit their patent power, which would control their political power because they wouldn't be as profitable of an industry. And that's a step you can take. There are laws on the books that the federal government can cite and use. It has the power to, uh, you know, literally march in according to the Bayh-Dole law, but there's other laws as well that enable the government to enforce its sovereign power and uh, its ultimate control of, of the patent system and uh, express its stake and claim its stake in all of these medicines. I mean, there's almost no medicine out there that's come out in the last 20 years where if you scratch the surface a little bit, you won't see origins in um, federal grants. Often the most important stages of research trace directly back to federal research. So, I mean, it's not like we need new laws. We just need a government that's not captured. We need HHS secretary with some spine. And we thought we had that with Becerra. We'll see. There's a very well-known case on his desk right now for a prostate cancer drug called Extandi uh, that was basically invented by the U.S. Army and is now controlled by one corporation that has priced it beyond reach and is breaking budgets and uh, keeping people outside of uh, a therapy that is not that expensive to produce. There's sort of a classic answer to a classic problem, um, you know, and it's not just specific to pharmaceuticals, but pharmaceuticals is the one area where it's probably most inexcusable, abhorrent, and where the answers are so bright in front of our faces. It's just maddening. And I think that's part of the reason why you see 85, 90% of the public, it's a cross-partisan supermajority you do not find on any other issue. People kind of understand this at a gut level, and they always have. That's hopeful, this sort of simmering anger that the industry, despite all of its money and its uh, propaganda surround sound system that it's constructed, cannot budge. It cannot change those numbers. 90% of the American people support government negotiations. They hate the drug companies and they know that they're being screwed. And the more we can just explain that and the more detail, the better and the more chance there's going to be for finally forcing some action on these issues. That was Alexander Zaychik, author of Owning the Sun, just out from Counterpoint Press. He mentioned a documentary on the fight to get low-cost AIDS drugs to Africa, whose director he couldn't remember. The film is Fire in the Blood, a 2013 documentary by Dylan Mohan Gray. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. Suspended in air, my mind on the gap, my head on the stair. 
on some of Pills by St. Vincent. Next, the dollar. It seems a little crass to talk finance amidst carnage, but the international role of the dollar is a cornerstone of U.S. imperial power. We are seeing some of that power in the regime of sanctions being imposed on Russia now. Were the dollar not the central currency of the world, the sanctions couldn't bite as hard. Oil and other major commodities are largely priced in dollars, meaning you need dollars to pay for it, and almost 90% of international currency transactions involve the dollar. The market for U.S. Treasury securities is the world's largest financial market, and they're the benchmarks for interest rates around the world. But will the use of sanctions erode the dollar's role over the longer term? My next guest thinks they might. She's Zhang Yan Lu, known as Zoe, a fellow in international political economy at the Council on Foreign Relations. She's a co-author of the article, The Anti-Dollar Axis, in the Council's journal, Foreign Affairs. Apologies for the audio quality. This was a bad Zoom experience. Zoe Lu. We've heard about threats to the preeminence of the dollar for decades now. People started talking about it in the 70s, you know, and then certainly at the time of the Gulf War, there were conspiracy theories floating that it was because Saddam Hussein wanted to price oil in euros and not dollars, and that's why he had to be invaded. I think that's (laughs) of little credibility, but people have been having this kind of conversation for some time now. Is the current situation more, uh, should we take it more seriously? China is certainly a larger and more powerful economy now than it was, and uh, if it's joined somehow with Russia... Um, Is this a much more credible threat to the dollar's preeminence than something we've seen in the past? I would say, you know, right now, is if you, if you look at, you know, the emerging or the aspirational, if you will, aspirational rising powers, for example, China, Russia to a certain degree, you know, or even in the broader BRICS context, you know, we've been talking about BRICS as a emerging market block for many years now. And I would say right now, I would not go too far to say that uh, the dollar is going to be dethroned anytime soon. But I would say that we should not or nobody should ever take the reserve currency status or the dominant currency status for granted. I mean, if you look at it across history, the U.S. dollar was not the reserve currency to begin with, right? We've seen the rise and fall of reserve currencies uh, from the guild to the British sterling. Now it's the dollar. So the, the discussion about dethroning the dollar or dilute or at least dilute the power of the dollar for for, for decades now. And right now, the trend, I would say, is really that probably the dollar is not going to terminate its its ruling power anytime soon. And the, the power of the dollar is not going to be ended with a big bomb, but we might really be seeing that the dollar's power being chipped away gradually. Just to use use China as an example, on the one hand, you know, you, it's interesting that you would talk about the example of Saddam Hussein and the, the pricing power of, of of dollar in major global commodities, for example, like oil. Has China been doing something like that? Yes, China has launched the yuan oil futures, and uh, that's one of the fast growing oil futures market right now. The petrol yuan system is not denominated in U.S. dollar, and uh, some people would argue that the, a very crucial element for the dollar's uh, preeminence is the power in the pricing of global oil and other major commodities. Now, with the rapid growth of yuan oil futures, and more importantly, the yuan oil future can be easily converted to gold futures. So you are literally talking about the pricing of major global com- commodities without even talking to or using the dollar system. That is pretty formidable, right? And then the other part of it is we probably have all heard about um, uh, former uh, Treasury Secretary Jack Wu. He famously said that the sanction power is not necessarily going to be conducive to the preservation of the U.S. dollar's hegemonic power because, you know, the more you sanction other people and the more we abuse our sanctioning power, the more we are going to see people try to hedge against the risk of the dollar. So in many ways, you know, in the context of the current crisis, why I am personally concerned about the long-term position of the dollar is because stringent sanctions probably will have a long-term impact to the dollar's dominant currency status, which is the acceleration of Russia's de-dollarization initiatives, not just unilaterally, but also multilaterally with interested partners, such as BRICS peers, 
as well as some other countries that have long been grumpy about the dollar stopping the currency status. Bank of England Governor Mark Carney during a Jackson Hole conference, he basically, you know, called out, you know, the dominant the, the dominant position of the dollar is very dangerous, and he literally called out, "We should do something about it." Vladimir Putin has been talking for some time about challenging the role of the dollar and being very critical of、uh, the power that it grants the U.S. What was he doing about that concern? When I am evaluating, you know, all the fact, I would say President Putin did not come unprepared, and I would say he has been preparing to face the severe consequences, starting from, you know, the annexation of Crimea in 2014. Since 2014, Russia has been launching its own domestic、uh, messaging system,、uh, so it's its own domestic version of SWIFT. And、uh, it also launched its domestic bank card system, the so-called Mia card system. Literally, it domestically speaking, it has been de-dollarizing, de-dollarization infrastructure, if you will. And uh, uh, has the Russians been trying to expand the user base of of its own alternative to the SWIFT or the so-called system for transfer of financial messages? Yes, it has been doing that. When Russians'、uh, own version of SWIFT became fully operational in 2017, there were already 30 something, close to 40 users. At the beginning of this month, when I checked the available data, it shows that the the Russian system has something close to 300. And 99 users, and that include international users,、uh, including、uh, two Russian banks based in Germany and、uh, in Switzerland. Those are like major international financial centers, right? And then the Russians has also been trying to、uh, convince China. To participate in the Russia's own SPFS or the System for Transaction of Financial Message System, trying to convince China, it's quite interesting that Russia would be interested in talk China into it because before 2014, China has already been working out on its own cross-border interbank、uh, payment system or the so-called CIPS. So in many ways, China has a longer has spent much longer time to develop its own alternative to SWIFT. And、uh, China's own alternative, or the CIPS, has much broader coverage. And China has its own bank card payment network, or the so-called Union Pay, which covers more than 180 countries. Over the weekend, we've seen some Russian banks when they when、uh, Visa and Mastercard left or、uh, ceased service, they started to look into、uh, the Union Pay bank card payment network. So those th- that could potentially give Russia some sort of Relief, but still, I would say, given Russia's interest in building a alternative, a non-dollar-based financial system or financial infrastructure, in many ways, is attractive. Not just the countries being sanctioned or have a higher risk of being sanctioned by the United States, but also, you know, you know, it could become this magnet, appealing to many countries that are not happy. About the dollar's dominant currency status, because you know, even if there is no geopolitical aspirations, there are still currency exchange risks, right? I can imagine that、uh, people around the world are looking at the difficulties that ordinary Russians are now having paying for things. You know, just、uh, the freeze of Visa and Mastercard and all, all kinds of just ordinary financial transactions. People can't buy things.、Uh, I would imagine a lot of countries and、uh, people around the world will look at that and say, "Hmm, do I want to expose myself to that?" I mean, is this going to、uh, encourage the effort to、uh, de-dollarize or reduce the dependence on the dollar? So that's that's a great question. You know, that's that's where I think. People would even before the stringent sanction all came into effect. People have already been exploring all the alternative asset or all the alternative asset format, you know, for inflation hedging purposes, for hedging against the dollar, for you know a variety of other reasons, right? And one such example. Around the world is not any other government-issued currencies, but really decentralized cryptocurrencies. So, hence, you know, people have been exploring or thinking about, you know,、uh, how to convert their government money-denominated assets, if, if you will, into decentralized asset.、Uh, and there are, you know, varieties of、uh, non-fungible tokens, and you see. Very active transactions in those market, and、uh, you know, in many ways, you know, the Fed, the、uh, the major central banks, you know, in the world, and you know, obviously the pe- the People's Bank of China, the PBOC, and the, and the Bank of Russia, they have all started looking into cryptocurrency or state-backed digital currencies. Both state-backed digital currencies and cryptocurrencies, you know, could be 
tangible means for people to bypass the dollar system, it probably is not too much a stretch to say the digital currency space or the digital asset market is a very formidable market, not even futuristic because it's already happening, right? To de-dollarize at a very, not just a state level, but also the market or the individual level. So that I, I think is, is one way for people to de-dollarize in many ways. And then the other is that, uh, you know, at, at uh, even corporate level, you know, for, for even for the co companies that are not necessarily the target of uh, the sanctions against Russia, they are having some incentives. Like, for example, Russia's uh, largest rough diamond exporting company, they have at the firm level, they developed the schemes to trade, make transactions with their Indian and the Chinese business partners. The idea was to, you know, conduct the business, bypass the dollar because it's too risky. So in many ways, there are a lot of incentives, both at the individual level and at the state level, or at a corporate level to bypass the dollar for economic reasons, for geopolitical reasons. When I'm looking at the news, like, you know, Russian tourists in Indonesia or in uh, Maldives, they cannot pay, even pay for their hotels because they cannot use their Visa or MasterCard. That is very worrisome, if, you know, even for individuals. Yeah, I guess uh, they got to be careful about the use of sanctions in the future. Yeah, yeah. I think, unfortunately, I, I don't necessarily believe that only reliant upon sanctions can achieve the desired outcome, because there is a huge debate in the academic literature talking about the effectiveness of sanctions, right? On the one hand, you would have to define what do you mean by effectiveness? And then on the other hand, I think we just have to be realistic. The more we sanction other people, the more we are incentivizing other people to realize, oh, yeah, I need to have the risk. It's a risk management uh, issue. <laughs> Finally, one reason for the prominence of the dollar is that we have this gigantic treasury market in which you know, governments and large institutional investors can park enormous sums of money without even splashing. Everything is so huge and liquid and deep that uh, the treasury market can absorb a lot. Um, it's also very open to foreign flows. Whereas China has no comparable thing. Uh, I think the Chinese leadership doesn't necessarily want to open up dramatically to foreign financial flows because it might reduce the state's control over the economy. Russia has nothing at all comparable. And it's, you know, in the scheme of things, not that large an economy compared to China, certainly. So that, that absence of a, that treasury market, what's going to happen with that over the long term? Is that going to inhibit any kind of de-dollarization? I would agree with you that uh, a very important aspect of the dollar's supremacy or the dollar's dominance is the established tradition of, you know, there is the gigantic and the more important liquidity of the large treasury market is very important. And then on top of that, there is also this established financial tradition of using the U.S. treasury securities as the proxy for risk-free assets in global financial market. That is a privilege. Risk-free basically means that that's the measurement for or the approximation for zero risk. Right. That's one of the more, perhaps a very critical reason many central banks and a sovereign institutional investors would hold their reserves and other financial assets in U.S. treasury securities or, you know, even corporations, because it's, it's as good as cash in many ways and uh, the credible liquidity. Right. So I, I would agree with you that, you know, that's an important aspect of dollar's dominance and the lack of a treasury market indeed is a constraint for any foreign currencies. And more importantly, in the particular case of, uh, of, of China, I would say, you know, the capital control is another obstacle for the renminbi or even the uh, digital renminbi or the yuan to become uh, a formidable challenger or contender to, to the dollar in, in terms of the do uh, dominant currency space. But in the long run, I would say this begs the question, right? The, 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 the long-term attractiveness of, of U.S. treasury. And uh, I, I would say that just, you know, putting my, my fi financial analyst hat on, I would say that really is going to be largely dependent upon or highly correlated with U.S. government credibility. And in many ways, when we are talking about a finance, is really about a confidence and a credibility game. So as long as, you know, international investors have confidence in the United States, have confidence in the government, have confidence in the U.S. market, the overall regulatory framework, I would think the Treasury's credibility is still there. All right, so I guess in conclusion, we could say um, 
the dollar's uh, role is likely to erode over time, but uh, certainly not overnight. Uh, I would agree with that. You know, even if uh, I, I, I think uh, I made the argument in the in, in the book on uh, can BRICS de-dollarize global financial system. I came eventually came to the conclusion saying that yes, you know, we've observed all this de-dollarization infrastructure uh, in the making, or some of which has already been laid out. But I would say that at least from what I can observe right now, the dollar's centrality is still there. And uh, even if we cannot take the dollar's uh, dominant currency status for granted, and we are not saying that the dollar's dominance is going to end overnight, but that being said, the dollar's dominance probably is going to be chipped away little by little. That was Zoe Liu, a fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. Her co-authored article on the anti-dollar axis is in the Foreign Affairs website and not yet behind a paywall. She mentioned some warnings from Jacob Liu, who was Treasury Secretary during the second Obama administration. In a 2016 speech to the Carnegie Council for International Peace, he said, We must guard against the impulse to reach for sanctions too lightly. If they make the business environment too complicated or unpredictable, or if they excessively interfere with the flow of funds worldwide, financial transactions may begin to move outside of the U.S. entirely, which could threaten the central role of the U.S. financial system globally, not to mention the effectiveness of our sanctions in the future. This round of sanctions wouldn't qualify as casual imposition, but Lou's point about the risks to the dollar's role is becoming very visible. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, a version of Pink Floyd's Money by the Vitamin String Quartet. Till next week, bye. <laughs>